Good for us to be reminded uh, the book of Revelation, the person being revealed is Jesus Christ. We're learning more and more about him, who he is, uh, what he does, and especially in these last days, what is it going to look like? But before we dive into Revelation chapter 4, uh, just a few announcements. This Wednesday after service, there's going to be a meeting for the Costa Rica missions trip. So they're planning on going to Costa Rica in June. If you're interested in going, that meeting is going to be happening this Wednesday night. Uh, I think a fair warning, the last couple of mission trips, they've filled up within... I think like a week, the past couple of them. So if you're interested in attending one of the mission trips, I encourage you to go to the meeting this Wednesday night. Uh, the marital classes, they'll be beginning on March, on April 3rd, I'm sorry. So if you're interested in getting married here at Calvary Chapel, Miami, be sure to attend those classes beginning April 3rd. And if you're already married, if your marriage is going great, I encourage you to go and encourage the other people that are there at the classes. Maybe your marriage, you've been going through some difficulties, great classes to attend as well. And also on April the 2nd, we're planning a church picnic, so just keep that date on mind. That's a Saturday, so if you've got to get some time off of work or anything like that, we'll be having our next church picnic on April 2nd. Uh, please keep in prayer. All the men will be heading out. It's 100 plus men will be heading out to the men's retreat this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, so we just covet your prayers for that. Uh, a couple more announcements. The cafe after service, they'll be serving pasta, either with chicken pesto or with meatballs. So if you're interested in grabbing lunch here, you can grab it. Uh, and uh, with difficult news, the cafe here has kind of been like Costco where they've never raised the prices. Uh, but they're going to raise the lunch prices uh, dollar. Not, not this week, but uh, in a couple weeks. So just uh, continue to be praying, continue to fellowship. And then these next couple services, we're going to be blessed with some guest speakers, some of the guys that will be sharing at the men's conference. So tomorrow night, the young adults, if you're young adult 18 to 33, we're going to be hearing the testimony from Travis Carey and his wife Maddie. Uh, so especially if you're a young adult and maybe you know someone that is has been struggling with uh, addictions. It's a great testimony to hear. Uh, Travis, he's now a pastor. He's in Portland, Maine, which is a pretty difficult area to be ministering. He started off the same year I did in 2020, uh, but he's gone through uh, the program there in Maine, and you have a man that was so addicted to drugs. He was mugging people, mugging elderly women, and the work that the Lord has done in his life that now he's a pastor in a very difficult city. So he'll be sharing with the young adults on Monday his testimony. He'll be sharing a Bible study on Wednesday night. And then next Sunday we'll have Mike Foch with us as well. Uh, some of you young adults remember him from a couple years back. He taught on prayer. Still remember that teaching on that Wednesday night. So I encourage you to come on out next Sunday. Maybe invite a friend this Wednesday or this Sunday. Uh, but with that, hey, let's read verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 4. And then we'll dive in and see what the Lord has for us. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it reads, And after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this immediately. I was in the Spirit, 
And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for the joy and privilege of, uh, Lord, knowing the whole counsel of God, Lord, being able to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter and see what you have to feed us this Sunday, Lord. And I pray for each of us, Lord, that we would have that great hope and expectation of your coming, Lord, that each of us, Lord, we would be being purified more and more, Lord, that we'd continually be growing in our holiness and our set-apartness for you, God. And uh, Lord, just again, a special prayer for any prodigals here this morning, Lord. If anyone here has left their first love, Lord, if anyone is that lukewarm uh, church attendee, Lord, we just pray that your spirit and your word would just light them on fire once again, Lord, for you and the things of you, Lord. And God, open our eyes if we're blinded, Lord. Open our ears, soften our hardened hearts, God, and help us to grow in you, Lord, in, in knowledge of your word and obedience to your word and in love for one another, God. Lord, we just pray for the church family, Lord. Just continue to lift up Lisandra, Lord. Uh, continue to pray for Joe and Renee, Lord. Pray for Joe and Angie as well, God, and Jessica, and just many people in the church going through trials, God. We just pray that you'd strengthen them, Lord. And uh, God, we just pray you'd bring them to mind, that we'd pray for them and encourage them with a call or a text or some other token of love, God. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we've been going through this journey through the book of Revelation, the past seven weeks we've been looking at the seven different churches. If you look at your Bible and you have a red letter Bible, if you notice all of chapter 3, all of chapter 2, and much of chapter 1 has red letters in there. And this is Jesus in chapter 1 speaking to John, but then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's Jesus having John write letters to seven different churches. These seven different churches, we looked at this extensively, they were written to seven specific and historical churches. These churches once existed in these specific ancient cities, so it's written to them specifically. It's also written to the church at large, that every single church is one of these seven churches. Pastors, leaders, we need to be praying, Lord, help us to be one of the two good churches, one of the two faithful churches. And then finally, it's written to each of us individually, that we need to be praying, Lord, what season of life am I in? Have I left my first love? Have I grown lukewarm? Lord, where am I at? Am I just relying on my reputation of who I once was for you, but lately, Lord, I haven't done anything for you or for the kingdom. We got to be praying these things out. And then finally we also looked at how it's a picture of church history at large. But if you would turn to Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, there we see our simple three-point outline which Jesus gives us. It's kind of tough to try to make a better outline than Jesus. So here's the outline Jesus gives us for the book. He tells John there in Revelation 1.19, he says, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So that's our three-point outline. The things which you have seen, that's everything that takes place in chapter 1. What he's seen, he's there and he witnesses Jesus. He writes the best picture he can of 
the essence of Jesus and who he is. In verse 2, it's write the things which are. And we've gone over that the past seven weeks. The things which are the church age. So if that's the things which are, the last point is the things which will take place after this. What is it after? It's after the church age. After that seven years, seven is a number of completion, right? And the word in the Greek, therefore, things will take place after this. In the Greek, it's the word metatauta. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it starts off with after these things. And chapter 4, verse 1, ends with the things which, was, which must take place after this. If you were reading your Bible in Greek or if you had a Greek, the Greek lexicon, a blue letter Bible or another Bible app, you would see there, there's literally a metatauta sandwich, right? That's literally what's taking place there. It starts off with that word after these things and it ends with that word after these things. So here what we're about to see is what happens after the church age. And looking at the book of Revelation, it's apparent that something has happened. Because in chapters 1 through 3, we see the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia, we have a couple family members here. Their last name is Iglesias, right? If you're Hispanic, you know Spanish, right? Iglesia, Ecclesia, it's Spanish for church. And that word ekklesia, we see it in Revelation 1 through 3, 19 times. It's popping up in the first three chapters 19 times. But all of a sudden, in chapter 4 through chapter 21... There's not one appearance of this word ecclesia. The church has disappeared in a sense, right? If you would. And then finally in Revelation 22 verse 16, we see the last and the only other time we see this word here in the book of Revelation. But it's already after the new heavens and already after the new earth. So something has transpired. Something has taken place, and in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, we here have a great portion of Scripture to look at the doctrine of the rapture. What is the rapture? What, it, what, what is it? What does it look like? Verses 1 and 2 give us an incredible picture of the rapture. John says that he's there, and he sees a door standing open in heaven. It's not a door he needs to knock on. He doesn't see Peter or Pearly Gates with a list, right, of who's in or not in. No, he sees a door that's already open. He hears a voice. It's the first voice he heard back in chapter 1. We know that's the voice of Jesus. And there the voice says it was like a trumpet. And that voice, that trumpety voice, Jesus says, come up here. And then John didn't take 50 minutes to get there. John wasn't in the shower saying, I'm on my way to get there, right? No, it says, immediately, immediately John was in the Spirit. And where is he? What's his location? He's there in heaven. And from here on out, from chapter 4 to about chapter 19, the rest of Revelation is written from heaven's perspective. Chapter 4 and 5, it's heaven's perspective and the worship that's going on in heaven. And then chapter 6 through 19 is from heaven looking down to earth, seeing God's wrath being poured out on the earth. So again, we're given a picture of the rapture, and I believe we're only given a picture of the rapture because the early church was already well taught with the doctrine of the rapture. They already knew about it. So now here John, Jesus, telling John what to write, is given a picture of the rapture. We're going to look at these scriptures. Let's go to John 14, 
forgot to mention this one in uh, the 9 a.m., so you guys get an extra verse. In John chapter 14, who better than to speak on the rapture than Jesus himself? Here in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to see a common, common progression here in all of these portions of Scripture. We're going to see Jesus coming. We're going to see Jesus receiving his people to himself, and we're going to see that this should bring us comfort and hope. We're going to see these three things over and over and over again. But here in John 14, verses 1 through 4, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. So again, Jesus says one day he's going to come again and he's going to receive the body, the church body, Christians, unto himself. We can now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul oftentimes, whenever he'd be writing a letter to a church, whenever he was on one of his missionary trips, he made it a point to talk about the rapture with these people. And even with, uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we'll look at that later on, we know that he was with this church for only three Sabbaths. He was with them a short time. There's 66 books in the Bible. There's so many doctrines, so many things you could talk about. And yet if you look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, almost every chapter ends with him speaking about the rapture. It was something very important for Paul to speak even to new believers. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul tells us, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? And O Hades, where is your victory? Again, verse 51, Paul says it's a mystery. You wouldn't know this unless I'm telling you about it. And here Paul is telling us about it, that we are not all going to sleep. What is that talking about? Does that mean people are going to stay awake in the service, right? Is that what he's talking about? No, if, if you've been reading along in the Bible reading, we recently saw how Jesus resurrected a dead little girl from, from death, right? Brought her from death to life. The people are freaking out and Jesus says, don't worry, she is only sleeping. They begin to mock him. They begin to laugh at Jesus. That idea of sleeping biblically, more often than not, it is people that have died and passed away. 
So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, hey, I have a mystery to tell you. We're not all going to die, but everyone is going to be changed. We're not all going to die, but every single person is going to change. And how is it going to happen? Verse 52 is going to be in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen in an instant. I don't know if you've ever thought the rapture is going to sort of be this like slow motion floating thing going on, right? We're all your church and what's happening, right? And start slowly floating up. You hit your head on the ceiling, right? You got to find your way out of the church. You're dodging birds and power lines. And, and you finally break through the barrier and you're there in heaven. No, it's in a moment. In a twinkling of an eye. And what do we see once again? A trumpet sounding and dead will be raised. Corruption will be put on incorruption. Mortal will put on immortality. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Another one of these cornerstone verses for the doctrine of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And really this morning it will just be a teaching on the rapture. And then next time we get back to the book of Revelation we'll look at chapter 4. Or perhaps chapter 4 and 5 and just the worship that's going to be taking place there in heaven. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13, Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Again, the reason why Paul's telling this church about the great hope and the doctrine of the rapture is because he did not want them to be ignorant towards it, right? Verse 13, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to not, not know about this. So he tells them this in hopes that they would not sorrow as people who have no hope. When other believers, when other Christians pass away, the way we sorrow should be totally different. Night and day different than the way the world sorrows. When a Christian passes away, maybe you said it by accident, but from here on out, don't say it that they're in heaven looking down at us, right? I'm, I'm bummed out enough being here. I don't want to be in heaven looking down here wondering what's going on, right? You're going to be worshiping up there. You're not going to be looking down. I know my little angel is looking up above me. No, not biblical. Not anywhere in scripture. We're not going to become angels. We're not going to be so bored in heaven that we're looking down. Hey, I wonder what they're doing down there, right? I wonder how. No, that is not biblical. We sh will not sorrow as others who have no hope. We have hope. We have a great hope. And in verse 16, it says, The Lord himself, Jesus, once again, he's going to come down from heaven. And then with a shout, that is a summon or a command. What is he, he going to command? I think we read it there in Revelation 4, 1 and 2. Come up here. 
I think Jesus is going to come down and descend and he's going to say, come up here and then all of the believers will be caught up together and we're going to meet him in the clouds and then he's going to take us there to heaven. Right? As we've been going through the gospels in our reading, oftentimes when Jesus does a miracle, not every time, but oftentimes he literally says what's going to happen, right? Lazarus, come out. What does Lazarus do? He comes out, right? Be healed. What happens? They're healed. Get up and walk. The guy gets up and he walks, right? And Jesus, I do believe that's what's going to happen. I don't know if it's an actual trumpet, if there's going to be trumpet and then command, or command and then trumpet, or just if it's the voice resounding like waters, like we sing about sometimes, that his voice is just going to reverberate throughout the whole world saying, come up. And then first, the dead in Christ, they're going to be with him, and then the rest of us are going to go up there. And what should this do to us as believers? Should we be freaking out about this? No, verse 18 tells us the heart and the perspective we should have. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These words should give us comfort. We're going to look in a moment how they, that should give us hope. Paul doesn't say freak each other out with these words, right? Scare your kids with these words. Hey, if you don't get it right, Jesus is coming, right? He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. No, that's not what it's about. We are to comfort one another with these words. And in a time where whenever you look at the news, it's just, it's just a bummer, right? Every time you look at the news, it's a bummer. You look at social media, it's a bummer. So much of what's going on in the world, it's a bummer. So important to take a step back and be reminded, if the Lord wills today, before we have lunch, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, all of this insanity won't matter to us who are in Christ. It's important for us to think about that. Sometimes we get so caught up, we're looking at our problems right there, that we forget about the grand scheme of things, right? I just read a Devo before coming up here. How Peter just witnesses Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And yet within the same evening, he's freaking out. And instead of looking at Jesus as he's walking on water, he gets fearful. He loses his faith and he's looking at the storm. What's going to happen, right? And oftentimes we as believers, God has literally just multiplied bread and fish for us. And yet the next storm comes and we're saying, Jesus, I'm going to die. I don't know how I'm going to make this. Take that step back and keep your focus on the Lord. Finally, 2 Thessalonians, a couple pages to your right there if you're still in 1 Thessalonians 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1 through 4. It tells us, Now, brethren, concerning... The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what's the second half of it? Our gathering together to him. We ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled. Either by spirit or by word or by letter. As if from us. As though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So once again, the coming of our Lord Jesus and the gathering together to him. See, oftentimes people get confused with when should the rapture happen because they mix the second coming of Jesus is sort of a two-part process. First, he's going to come for his church. 
And then seven years happens, and then he's going to come with his church. So first he's going to come for his church, and then he's going to come with his church. That's the two-part process of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first time he comes down, but he doesn't step foot on the planet. He comes, and then we, get gather, we are gathered together with him. The second time he comes, we're coming with him. He steps foot on the Mount of Olives, and it says the Mount of Olives splits in two, and there's a spring that brings life into Israel and heals the Dead Sea, and then there's all the amazing miracles that are going to happen in that millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to come, and then we're going to be gathered together with him. Something interesting there in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 is that it says the day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Uh, me and Jerry got, came back from a conference early in February with Scott Gallatin and Bill Gallatin and uh, Pastor Tony. Continue to pray for Pastor Tony and his health. But we were literally just given a book that is specific on this falling away. That some of the first English translations use the term to depart instead of a falling away. The implication is that the text is not referring to apostasy, but the removal of something or someone or someones. Very early versions of the Bible, this is how they had it written. The Tyndale Bible, written in 1530, this is the first New Testament Bible in English. The first one ever would read like this. Let no man deceive you by any means, for the Lord comes not, except there come a departing first, and that the sinful man be opened the son of perdition. The Wycliffe Bible, written in 1380, it's the first person to produce a handwritten Bible. Imagine rewriting the entire Bible in your own handwriting, right? And in his Bible version here in 1380, him following the manuscript, he says, Let no man deceive you in any matter, for but dissension or departing away come first, and the man of sin be showed the son of perdition. So again, these are just some interesting notes. It's not, this isn't the foundation of our belief on the rapture, just some added new discoveries as they're continuing to research the manuscripts and the Bible and things like that. Some people say the word rapture isn't in the Bible, so I don't believe it. Have you ever heard anybody say that before? A handful of us, the word rapture isn't in the Bible. There's a lot of words not in the Bible. Do you know that the word trinity is not in the Bible? Do we now just throw out the trinity because we don't see the actual word trinity in the Bible? Do you know the word discipleship is not in the Bible? There's disciples, there's making disciples, but there's no discipleship in the Bible. Do you know that the word Bible is not in the Bible? And we believe it. We think, man, the Bible's good. It talks about itself, but that word isn't in there. Again, that's a strong man's argument. This word rapture in the Greek is the word harpazo, and it means to seize or to snatch. It's to catch up. It's to take something by force. It's to snatch away. It speaks of when the birds of the air come and snatch up the seed. It's that same word. When Philip is transported, right, he has teleportation in the book of Acts. It's that he's caught up and he's taken from one area to another. That word rapture in Latin is the word rapturo, which means to seize or to catch. If you have a Latin Vulgate Bible and you know Latin, you would have that word rapture there. It would be the word rapturo. I'm happy that we say we're waiting for the rapture and not the harpazo, right? I just think of being put to sleep with a harp when I think of harpazo. But in English, what would rapture be? 
to be caught away. To be caught away. So if you want to get in an argument over the Latin, the Greek, the, the, all, don't get in arguments like that. They're, they're not worth your time. So the, the word rapture, it is there. It just depends on which Bible version you're reading, translation. Jesus, a couple points on the rapture. Jesus taught that his second return would be at any moment. It would happen at any time. It would be a surprise. It would catch people, even servants, by surprise. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, this is known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus, he has a a very large teaching here, and it's all happening on the Mount of Olives. A lot of chapter 24 talks about the end of age about the great tribulation, about Jesus' second coming, and so many other things happening. But Jesus is here teaching about imminence. And that word imminence, it's the quality or state of about to happen. It's about to happen. There's nothing holding it back from happening. In Matthew 24, verse 36, it says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. But my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Again, no one knows the day or the hour. It's a surprise. It's a pop quiz. That's how it's going to happen. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And no one knows the day or the hour. I hope none of you got caught up with a couple of years ago. And, and it cycles. Every couple of years, people got to sell books and make money, right? And there's a the whole thing on the blood moons. And there's this blood moon, there's all these blood moons, so the rapture has to happen because of all these blood moons. I don't even know what a blood moon is, right? But I remember a pastor that I love dearly, he got caught up in this stuff. He's like insanely smart, but he got caught up in this stuff. He's like, man, I love you, but I'll guarantee you one day the rapture is not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen on that day because no one knows the day or the hour. We continue here, and Jesus, he's warning us of his second return. Verse 37, right, he says it's going to be like the days of Noah. Verse 38, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. He says it's going to be just like Noah and the flood. And Noah was warning all the people around him for decades, hey, it's going to rain. The only problem is no one had ever seen rain before. Have you ever seen a rapture before, right? When you talk to someone about the rapture, don't you get that look, right? This guy's gone Looney Tunes, right? He believes in Star Trek. Beam me up, Scotty, right? These guys are losing it. And that's exactly what they thought of Noah, Noah, you're talking about this rain. You're talking about this flood. Dude, you've lost it. You're building a boat. No one even knows what this thing is, right? Except what happened one day? It started to rain. It started to rain one day. And Jesus says it's going to be just like that. That many people we've shared the gospel with, many times people ask us, hey, what do you think is going to happen at the end of age? I remember one time, it was a while ago, I was talking to my barber. He's like, what do you think the end of the world is going to be like? Here we go, right? Talk to him about the rapture, everything like that. It's a long, silent pause after that. But man, I'm, I'm praying for him. I'm praying for him. But just like Noah, they'll, they'll look at us. No, you're crazy. What are you talking about? But one day it's going to rain. And we know that during the Great Tribulation, there's going to be many people that come to the knowledge of Jesus. They're going to go through great difficulty. They're not going to be able to buy or sell food. 
that it's going to cost them their lives. They're going to have to be decapitated, right, if they continue to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. We continue here, verse 40, it says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Right? Have you ever had your house broken into? Right? Were you expecting it, right? Did you leave the house saying, I know I'm going to get broken into today. Well, hey, let's go to dinner anyways, right? It didn't go that way. You're not expecting it. And it's going to be the same with the rapture. It can happen at any moment. Most of humanity is not going to expect it. There's the very few that are ready for his return. We'll look at that later on. So the Bible teaches us that it's imminent. It can happen at any time. The Bible also teaches us that the rapture should give us comfort and should give us hope. It shouldn't bring us fear and now we're going crazy or we become right, doomsday preppers and we're packing for the tribulation. No, it should bring us comfort and hope. We already read this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writing to one of his sons in the faith, he says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul tells Titus, hey, we should be actively looking for this blessed hope, for this glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, he says, The discipline of grace according to the Apostle Paul had three results. It's denying, living, and looking. Our lives should be known for these three words. We need to begin by denying. Denying our flesh. Denying sin. Denying the pressure this world wants to put on our lives. Denying the morals the world wants us to adopt. We need to live a life that's denying the world and the things of this world. Our sin and our flesh. We need to be living our life as Christians is not enough to just deny the things of sin. We need to be living for our Lord and Master. We need to be those servants whom when He returns, He finds doing, living for Him. Are we living that life and that abundantly? Can people see the love, the selfless love of Christ in us? And finally, we need to be looking. We need to be looking up. We need to be looking at the author and finisher of our faith. We need to be looking at the finish line. We need to be looking at what all of eternity will look like. Friend, is your life known by these three words, denying, living, and looking? As believers, this should be our life. Let's turn real quick to 1 Peter chapter 1. To me, it's so interesting how often Peter also will reference the return of Jesus Christ. But there in 1 Peter chapter 1... Verse 3, Peter also talks about a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. He tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible 
and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Again, this word living hope in the Greek, it's literally a hope that possesses the vital power of life itself and gives this power of life itself to everyone and anyone in contact with this hope. We as believers, we shouldn't be Christian Eeyores, right? Shouldn't be Christian Debbie Downers. We shouldn't be whining and moping everywhere we go. There should be life and that abundantly flowing in us and out of us. Again, Jesus, he had 12 men follow him for three years without a place to sleep, without any food, and without any money. I don't think he was a Debbie Downer, right? I don't think he was that person you get in a conversation with them and you just go, all right, here we go, right? We got to endure this. Is that who we are? Do we just death and death itself like floating among us or do we have a life and that abundantly flowing in us? And out of us, a living hope. The Bible also teaches us that God's wrath is not for believers. The wrath of God is not for the church. It's not for Christians. There's, there are promises in life that we will taste of wrath, but there's man's wrath versus God's wrath. You see, every human being will taste of man's wrath. We live in a sinful world. If you've had your house broken into, that's man's wrath. If you've ever been held up, a car accident, a bad business deal, something going wrong, that is the wrath of man. As believers, it says we should go through even more of that trial and tribulation. However, if we're saved, we'll go through man's wrath, but we won't have to go through God's wrath. The sad thing for the unbeliever is they have to go through both. They have to go through the wrath of man and they have to go through the wrath of God. One of those promises you don't usually put on your refrigerator or on your car, right? John 16, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You see, if you are in Christ, Jesus' death on the cross took on all of God's wrath. Jesus being an immortal being, Jesus being God, Jesus being outside of time before him coming and being born of a baby. He was able to take the full wrath of God those moments he was on the cross. So that if we come to Jesus and we live our life abiding in Jesus, if we live our life obeying Jesus and his word, we are saying, God, my good is not good enough to withstand your wrath. But I believe the wrath of God was already poured out on Jesus. And Lord, that's how I come to you. The danger, the scary thing for the unbeliever is they are coming to God saying, I believe my good is good enough to withstand the wrath of God. And it won't. It's the wrath of God for all of eternity. Hell is being separated away from God. So for the Christian, for the believer, God's wrath is not for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you turn there, we're hammering these books over and over again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, I'm not just making this up. I'm not an an escapist, right? Some people, they believe in pre-tribulation rapture, mid-trib, post-trib, three-quarter trib, four-quarter trib, right? All sorts of tribs, right? It's important for us. This teaching isn't for you to get a bunch of ammunition and say, okay, I'm going to go argue with this guy on Monday, right? Wait till I come back and hit him with all of your notes. No, that's not what this is about. 
There are many things that are not worth arguing about. This is one of them. Many good, strong believers believe in pre-tribulation rapture, mid-trib, and post-trib, right? How many people have been won over in an argument? But here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 through 11, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, there's that word again, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Again, God did not appoint us to wrath. If we have salvation in Christ, we don't have the wrath of God. If we don't have salvation in Christ, then we do. We will taste of the full wrath of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. It says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What does that word justified mean? It means just as if you have never sinned. When we are in Christ, we're dipped in that blood, and then we're not just a broken vessel with a bunch of duct tape, right? We're not a broken vessel with a bunch of glue, and our noses and our faces are all jacked up, right? That's not how it works. If we're in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come, and we don't have to go through his wrath. Jesus on the cross, the, the importance of communion, he took on the full wrath of God. He gave us the cup of communion, and he took on the cup of God's wrath. You see, the great tribulation is no other than God's complete wrath on this world and God dealing with Israel and the Jews that denied the true Messiah, which is Jesus Christ. Let's jump back over to Matthew 24. And many believers, they get it twisted. In John 16, we read it, right? In this world, you will have tribulation. That's tribulation with a little t, right? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, he speaks of the great tribulation. And this is with a capital G. This is all caps lock, great tribulation. When you go home, you could read through all of this, verse 15 through 18, if you want to know more of the tribulation. I think it's interesting, verses 15 through 20, it's really speaking about Israel, it's speaking about Sabbaths, it's speaking about Judea, it's speaking about the area of the Jews. Again, speaking how the tribulation, it's about God dealing with the Jews and dealing with this world. But verse 20, it says, And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So a couple of things Jesus is saying here, right? At the end of verse 22, he says, it's shortened for the elect's sake. Is that us? No. That's speaking of people that get saved during the tribulation. We already mentioned that. If you're talking to your family members about the gospel, you're talking to your family members about the rapture, you're talking to your family members about the tribulation, and all of a sudden you and all of your family disappear, a great population of the world disappears, and now there's one world leader and one world government and one world finance and one world religion, if you've warned them well, they should open their eyes and hopefully they turn to the Lord. So the Bible teaches that there 